0: Well, if you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Luke, the book of Luke, we finished the book of John last week, and uh, the book of Luke is where we will be turning to. Uh, Last week, we looked at the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, looked at the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples at the end of the book of John. Where they had gone back to their old ways, they had gone back to fishing, and Jesus challenges and questions the love of Peter, restoring him and his confidence and challenging them to follow him. But there is a cost to following the Lord Jesus, as we shall see three individuals here in Luke chapter 9. Our scripture reading will come from verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. The text of Scripture reads, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your enduring word. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and mighty things from your word, that your spirit would grant to us understanding and challenge us in ways we have not been, of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. This past week, on Thursday, CNN reported that the Islamic State in Syria, or ISIS, has seized a number of Assyrian Christians, a number of Assyrian Christians, some 262 of them, in the Syrian villages in northeastern Syria in the past week. There's a couple named Charlotte and Romel David, and they told CNN that 12 of their family members were believed to be among those who. Were kidnapped early Monday. They said, What we've heard is it was like a sea of black uniforms marching through all the villages, burning down the churches, desecrating the crosses, and wrecking havoc. CBS News reported that some 20,000 Egyptians have fled, have fled out of Libya since the release of the video in which 21 Egyptian Christians were killed, beheaded. Some two to 3,000 Egyptians cross daily from Libya the past 10 days. Many of them have come from Sirte, which is the central city in which these Christians were abducted. Why? Why is that? According to Asra Nomani, who writes... Well, ISIS is using a harsh interpretation of a verse in the Quran to justify its attacks on Christians. This week's alleged kidnappings of 90 Syrian Christians sent shockwaves around the world, but the young men of the Islamic State have been flagging for months now a simple idea. They follow an interpretation of Islam that blesses a 7th century Quranic war strategy to, quote, capture and besiege anyone who is a mushrikun or a, quote-unquote, polytheist. And Christians in the worldview of the Islamic State fall into that category. And she goes on to explain how the mushrikrum is a slur word like witch was during the Salem witch trials in Massachusetts in 17th century America. So Christians are seen as polytheistic and Christianity as Paganism. She writes, quote, militant Muslims like those in the Islamic State exploit a chapter in the Quran, or this passage called the Forgiveness, which reads in part, quote, when the sacred months, the first, seventh, eleventh, and twelfth months of the Islamic calendar, quote, have passed... Then kill the Mushrakun when you find them and capture them and besiege them and lie in wait for them in each and every ambush. Unquote. Because of that threat, because of the threat of ISIS in various parts of the Middle East, Christians have fled. They have fled across borders as refugees and they live in the camps. They've fled for their lives. And the cost of what it means to be a Christian in parts of the Middle East today is is very, very real. Whether it is in the Middle East or even in parts of Africa, whether it is parts of Southeast Asia or countries like North Korea that persecute Christians, the fact of the matter is that cost is upfront. That cost is a price that is considered upfront for being a follower of Jesus. In stark comparison, many who profess Christ in the West. We don't know what it is to count the cost, to count the cost of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, because commitments are so easily made, oftentimes merely superficial, like a facade on a building that is empty inside. And last week, when we finished the book of John, in John chapter 21, Jesus, who manifested himself to these disciples as he had come to them while they were fishing, Jesus challenges them in his questions. And I'm sure the other disciples heard even as he questioned Peter, asking Peter if Peter loved him sacrificially, unconditionally, with the highest love that is possible, that is the unconditional agape love. Is that the type of love that Peter had? And it is applicable to us as well kind of love do we have towards God? Is it a love that is willing to sacrifice, knowing that the cost of being a Christian calls us us to follow Him? We saw last week that they had to be those who would be willing to abandon worldly ambition, be willing to die for Him and follow wherever He leads. The question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? To follow Jesus, to be a disciple. David Platt writes in his book, Follow Him, he writes, quote, They believed following Jesus was worth the cost. In Jesus, these men, referring to those in John chapter 21 whom Jesus challenged, these men found someone worth losing everything for. In Christ, they encountered a love that surpassed comprehension a satisfaction that superseded circumstances and a purpose that transcended every other possible pursuit in the world. They eagerly, willingly, and gladly lost their lives in order to know, follow, and proclaim him. In the footsteps of Jesus, these first disciples discovered a path worth giving their lives to tread. But 2,000 years later, I wonder, he writes, How far we have wandered from that path. Somewhere along the way, amid varying cultural tides and popular trends, many have tried to minimize Jesus' summons of total abandonment. Churches are filled with people who seem content to have a casual association with Christ and give nominal adherence to Christianity. Scores of men... Women and children have been told that becoming a follower of Jesus simply involves acknowledging a certain set of facts or saying certain words, but that is not true. Disciples like Peter, Andrew, James, and John show us that the call to follow Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It is a summons to lose our lives. He beckons us down a hard road, and the word Jesus uses for this associated It's associated in other parts of the Bible with pain, pressure, tribulation, persecution. The way of Jesus is hard to follow and it's hated by many. Almost unknowingly, we shrink back from this cost, choosing to redefine Christianity according to our personal preference church traditions, cultural norms. Slowly, subtly, we take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into someone with whom we are a little more comfortable. We dilute what he says about the cost of following him. We disregard what he says about those who choose not to follow him. We practically ignore what he says about materialism. And we functionally miss what he says about mission. We pick and choose what we like and don't like from Jesus' teachings, in the end, we create a nice, non offensive, politically correct, middle class American Jesus who looks just like us and thinks just like us. I quote. It's just true, don't you think? A nice, non offensive, loving, middle class Jesus that fits our lifestyle, in which much giving casual adherence to, casual credence to, is accepted, adopted, in fact, by many Christians. Is that your Jesus? You know, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7.21 that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter... there will be many who will give lip service to the Lord Jesus. There will be many who will say, Lord, Lord. There will be many who will say, I'm a Christian, and give credence to a set of facts. Many do so. But when the rubber meets the road, when the call to being a follower of Jesus comes, then their faith is put to the test as to whether it is true or not. And here in this particular text today, Jesus challenges, challenges three individuals who do not have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. They don't know what it is to be a true follower, and Jesus challenges these three with the high cost of what it means to follow him. Three demands of a disciple of Christ, and the three demands are that there will be a cost, cost of personal comforts, cost of wealth. The cost of plans, personal plans. The cost of personal comforts, first of all, as it says in verse 57. And they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scriptures tell us who this particular someone is. If you look in Matthew chapter 8, which is the parallel passage, tells us this man is a scribe tells us this man is a scribe, and that's significant because, you see, scribes didn't follow. Scribes had followers. Scribes were the educated. They knew the law. They were the ones who were the scholarly, spiritual class in the Jewish society. Maybe they were like the, the professors of their particular study in the Jewish law. They followed a system of religious traditions which they had made. And again, this is remarkable, because scribes were leaders. they had disciples of their own. They had followers of their own, and yet this scribe says to Jesus, "I'll follow you." And Jesus wasn't one who was an educated scribe. In fact, he was known to be opposed to man-made religions uh, that were concocted by the Pharisees and the scribes of that time. And this particular scribe says to Jesus these things, without reservation. But it was also without knowledge of what he was asking. And people do that all the time, don't they? They they say things not knowing and realizing what they are asking. Children do that. When they ask for a pet, they want a dog, they want a cat, or whatever it may be. And who ends up taking care of that dog? Well you tell them that they will, but who ends up washing them, walking them, feeding them, cleaning up the carpet whenever it is? Many times it's the parents. They want to be able to drive. But do they really understand what it is to fill the gas tank, to repair the car, to be able to pay for insurance, et cetera, et cetera? And so, too, there's that desire to follow Jesus, not understanding the cost that is there, not understanding the cost that is there, similar to when James and John, James and John spoke prematurely in Matthew chapter 20, I should say they asked their mother to, Their mother was the aunt of Jesus, Jesus' aunt. And it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he, Jesus, said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left." But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Little did they know the suffering that Jesus would have. Little did they know about his death, his crucifixion, that he would die for their faith. And so too, this scribe who came to Jesus came and proclaimed that he desired to follow Jesus. And like many in that day, maybe he was drawn by the miracles of Jesus. Maybe he was drawn by the profound teaching that Jesus gave. Whatever it was, like many others, he pledged that he wanted to follow Jesus without counting the cost. But Jesus knew what his problem was, and he challenges him. And he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When Jesus came to the earth, he had nothing, not even many of the basic comforts in life. He had no home of his own, no property, no tent. Jesus, when Jesus healed the man born blind in John chapter seven to eight one, the text reads after that, everyone, quote unquote, went to his home, unquote. Do you know what Jesus did after that event? He went to the Mount of Olives to pray. While others slept, Jesus prayed. While others were going to their own homes, Jesus was going to sleep outdoors. Not only did everyone else have a home, like even the Apostle Peter had a home, he had a boat, he had a wife, even the foxes. Have holes and the birds of the air have nests. Every creature has a place to stay, but the Son of Man, he said, had nowhere to lay his head. And the message was very clear. The message is if you want to follow Jesus, it's not going to be a life of comfort and ease, of luxury, of whatever it may be. Following Jesus may very well cost you. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, he said to his disciples, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. Paul reminds Timothy as well that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is a cost of following Jesus, a sacrifice of potential personal comforts. There's a man named Ira Judson who was a missionary to Burma for 18 years Eighteen years he went without a furlough. Six years he ministered there without a single convert. experienced there he was tortured and imprisoned and he admitted honestly that he never saw a ship sail away without jumping on board wanting to go home. But then his wife, his wife's health broke and he put her on a homebound vessel with the knowledge that he would not see his wife for two full years. And he wrote in his diary, quote, if we could find some resting place on earth where we could spend the rest of our days in peace. But then he had a little postscript when he writes, life is short. Millions of Burmese are perishing. I am almost the only person on earth who has attained their language to communicate salvation, unquote. How would you feel? How would you feel if you were that spouse? Would you, want, would you want them to be placed in a situation where they may lose their life or that you might not see them for a significant period of time, that they might share the gospel for God's glory? Would you be willing to be without them for years, perhaps? I can still remember number of years ago, when the Fukushima nuclear plant accident happened, the danger that missionaries that many of you know, Richard and Carrie Nakamura, had faced because of the potential cloud contamination from the radiation would threaten their family if it moved in a particular direction. And I have to say, I admired what they decided to do. Of course, as Richard, being the father, led them to choose to protect Carrie and the children and they moved back quickly out of harm's way back to the U.S. But he himself, they both decided that he would stay back. He would stay back for a period of time in Japan. Why? Because they had been trying to reach the Japanese and in the wake of the disaster people's hearts were softened, people's hearts were open more open than they had before because their needs were so much greater. And what a prime opportunity. What a prime opportunity to share about Christ, even at the risk of radioactive contamination. How we'd have to dress up in order to go into the area. How would they have to do scrub down, etc. Would you ever do that? Would you ever do that, be willing to do that? Being the father of five children the youngest at that time, I think, was about five or six or seven or something like that. Would you ever consider that maybe the lives of those that you've been trying to reach with the gospel are so important that even personal health might be put at stake? Or would you say, no, don't go? You shouldn't go? That's a commitment despite personal comforts. See, many people will give their lives to the Lord and service to the Lord only if it's Convenient. Only if it's expedient or only if whatever it is. In other words, I'm willing to do your will if I'm not too inconvenienced, if it's not too hard, if it's not on a Saturday because that's my day off, if it's not too early in the morning because I like to sleep in, if the weather is good, the food is good, and it's not dangerous. You know, when we went to Uganda in '09, there was a group that was considering going. It was a few years after the Lord's Resistance Army had moved out And the LRA was uh, really led by Joseph Cohn, in which he had recruited a number of child soldiers. They would go and kidnap the, the children from the villages, and then they would force the children to kill their own families, such that they would, number one, have no ties to the village, but number two, they would ostracize themselves and have no place to go but to stay with the army. We already knew and publicized it was a former war zone with many of these African children who were part of the army, or if they weren't, they were refugees, many of them without parents. One of the common questions that some asked was, is it safe? Is it safe? And I can still remember what Candice Bingham said. She was the missionary on site, along with Jerry, and what they shared Her response initially was, if you have to ask if it's safe, then maybe you shouldn't go. And I can see her point, because traveling, you see, in rural Africa, traveling anywhere and everything, you've risked diseases, you risk what? The suffering that comes because of food, because of poor drivers on the road, because of the sweltering heat, the doctors, other enemies of Christ sometimes would come They'd be easily carrying AK-47s all over the place when we were there. It's not a mission trip of convenience. There was a missionary society that wrote to David Livingston. Some of you recognize his name. He was a missionary to Africa, very well known. The missionary society wrote and asked, quote, Have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. Livingston wrote back, if you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all, unquote. How often is it that we place our lifestyle, our convenience, our comforts, the things that we want above the will and the call of God, to say, oh God, I'll only do it if it's convenient, if it's only considerate of, What my lifestyle may be, God never promised us to follow Christ only when it's comfortable or easy, but He did promise that He would carry us through and provide for whatever we need if He calls, that He would give us peace and joy when we walk with Him. Being a disciple of Christ costs us the cost of personal comfort. Secondly, the cost of personal wealth, the cost of personal wealth, verse 59, And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, that sounds like a rather unreasonable response to someone if their father passed away. In fact, the response may even seem somewhat insensitive at first glance, not to allow someone to have a funeral for their father. But the phrase that is said there, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, was a common Near Eastern figure of speech, which refers to the son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. That could be decades away. That could be decades away. The responsibility of a a child to help with the family business until the father died and the inheritance would be distributed. I mean, if you didn't help your father, your inheritance would be lost or significantly reduced. In fact, this man was saying, no, I'm going to wait until I get my inheritance before I follow you. And that's not unlike what many desire today. The sentiment is, I'll live like I live, I desire to live, and then, maybe later on, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I remember one person saying to me many years ago, you know, I can, I can accept Jesus right before I die, right? And then I'll go to heaven, right? I'll accept Jesus at the end of my life. Right now, I'll live like how I want to live. Later on, I'll accept Jesus. You can, but you have no clue when you'll die. No one knows when they will die, and they'll have forfeited all of those years of God's blessing when they walk with God. But many desire things like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's the whole sentiment many had in the Jewish community, that they had to do something in order to be saved, and Jesus told them to love God, obey His commandments, and told him to leave finally all that he owned, to follow him. And what did that rich young ruler do? He walked away sad because he could not give up the comforts of wealth. It's always a shock to me when someone says to me, that's said to me more than once, and people have served, they stop serving, sacrificially serving the Lord, and they say, you know, my time is worth, they put a dollar amount, or... This is less than minimum wage, as if serving the Lord is just not worth my time, not worth my time, because they view their time in terms of money. That perspective is completely opposite of what it means to give oneself to the Lord, to give oneself to God because of all that Jesus did for them. That would be like saying to your parents who lovingly raised you, who fed you, who changed you, who taught you, who put you through school, and if they need a ride to the hospital for you to say, well, you know what, it's not my time. It's just not worth it. It's uh, worth X amount of... I think I'll, I'll pay for a cab for you. That would be equivalent to getting less than minimum wage if I drove you to the hospital, mom, dad. You'd be quick to think, how ungrateful, how inconsiderate, how disrespectful. What a way to not honor your parents who have given you so very much. And yet some people look at their God-given skills, their God-given education, their God-given job, their God-given salary, their God-given abilities, their God-given life and say, like a child, might: these are mine. These are mine, my life, my time, my resources. You can't have them, God, my health. Wait till God takes that away. Then we would be praying so much more than we ever have, realizing that all comes from God. C.T. Studd, who was a very famous English cricketer and a member of the English... 11th cricket team gave away all of his wealth to become a missionary a little over 100 years ago, and his slogan was, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him, unquote. No matter what the personal sacrifice one makes, it would never compare to the sacrifice of God's Son on the cross for our sins. Jesus doesn't ask us all to sell everything, to live in some commune, but He does tell us not to be attached and to have an abandonment toward the decaying material things that God has granted to us that we might use for His glory. He said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Must deny himself. So, do we live that way? Do we live in a way that is characterized by self denial or self sacrifice and personal riches? Do they keep you from following Jesus like the rich young ruler? Jesus said to this man here, He said, You go and proclaim the kingdom. You go and proclaim the kingdom. The priority is to proclaim the kingdom. Thirdly, not only is there a cost of personal wealth and personal comforts, but the cost of personal plans, verse 61. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus knew, you see, Jesus knew the heart of this individual. He had a divided heart. A heart that wasn't fully committed to God, and a heart that was half-hearted, and His proposal was conditional, and in other words, Lord, if you, if you don't allow me to say goodbye, then forget it. Forget it. I'm not following Jesus. Who knows what He would have done? Who knows what He would have done? Was this an excuse? Certainly, Jesus knew. That's why He responds the way that He responds, that it was an excuse And do you realize when Jesus calls, when He said to the disciples there in John chapter 21, or when He says, follow me, they're imperatives. In the New Testament, they are imperatives. When Jesus says, come, in Matthew 11, come unto me, or follow me, they're imperatives, meaning that they are commands. And not to follow Jesus is to sin against God. There's not an invitation that says, you know what, you should consider this. Here's an offer for you. I'd like to consider this and give it some thought, will you? Jesus doesn't say that. He says, come, follow me. Jesus told this man, you don't plow a field and look back. A farmer, you see, plows a field. You know how? In order to plow a straight furrow in a field, he keeps his eyes not only forward, but he fixes his eyes on a particular object far down the road so that he can continue to plow a straight furrow. If we want to follow Christ and we surrender, we surrender our personal plans, it's not to say that we can't have things that we desire, but it is to say, Lord, whatever you desire, that is what I want. To be able to sing with wholehearted desire, Lord, I lift up my life to you. Everything I will do, use it for your glory. Following Christ requires that we surrender all. A couple of weeks ago, there was a ruling in a case of a florist, of a florist here in Washington State who refused to decorate, refused to decorate for a same-sex ceremony. This is how the case read related to Arlene's flowers, just right over here in Richland, the Attorney General had offered a legal settlement. Last week, it was ruled, just the week before, that Arlene's flowers had violated the law by declining to decorate for a ceremony. And the Attorney General, our Attorney General of the state, initiated this action of this grandmother, against this grandmother, and a small business owner, and offered that all you have to do is pay $2,001 if you refuse to no longer do any weddings and not to appeal the ruling. She wrote back, she wrote back to him, and said this, "'Dear Mr. Ferguson, thank you for reaching out and making an offer to settle your case against me. As you may imagine, it has been mentally and emotionally exhausting,' To be at the center of this controversy for nearly two years, I never imagined that using my God-given talents and abilities and doing what I love to do for over three decades would become illegal. Our state would be a better place if we respected each other's differences, and our leaders protected the freedom to have those differences. Since 2012, same-sex couples all over the state have been free to act on their beliefs about marriage, but because I follow the Bible's teaching that marriage is the union of one man and one woman, I am no longer free to act on my beliefs. Your offer reveals that you don't really understand me or what this conflict is all about. It's about freedom, not money. I certainly don't relish the idea of losing my business, my home, and everything else that your lawsuit threatens to take from my family, but my freedom to honor God in doing what I do best is more important. Washington's Constitution guarantees us, quote, freedom of conscience in all matters of religious sentiment, unquote. I cannot sell that precious freedom. You are asking me to walk the way of a well-known betrayer, one who sold something of infinite worth for 30 pieces of silver. That is something I will not do. I pray you reconsider your position. I kindly served Rob for nearly a decade and would gladly continue to do so. He was the client. I truly want the best for my friend. I've also employed and served many members of the LGBT community and I will continue to do so regardless of what happens with this case. You chose to attack my faith and pursue this, not simply as a matter of law, but to threaten my very means of working, eating, and having a home. If you are serious about clarifying the law, then I urge you to drop your claims against my home, business, and other assets, and pursue the legal claims through the appeals process. Thanks again for writing, and I hope that you will consider my offer Sincerely, Baronel Stutzman. That's a sign of our times, isn't it? When Christians such as this grandmother who has employed and served many in the community without discrimination, chooses to do her business based upon her convictions in not participating in a religious ceremony that violates her faith, are threatened with everything being taken away her home her finances her assets her business something that she has done for for 30 years or more that is the cost of our faith it is not small cs lewis writes in mere christianity that christ says give me all i don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work i want you I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree cut down. I don't want to drill a tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the natural self all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. My own will shall become yours. That's the cost, but there is a great reward. 2007, you recall there was a tragedy that happened on December 9th when there was a man named Matthew Murray, he walked into a YWAM, which is Youth with the Mission Training Center in Denver. And there, he was associating with other, other youth. He was in the building for about a half hour, and he was talking with the other students, and he asked if he could spend the night. This girl named Tiffany was called up front because she was in charge of hospitality and Normally, she said, we don't have people spend the night if we don't know who they are and they don't arrange ahead of time. Matthew said, then this is what I've got for you. And he pulled out a gun and he began shooting. He shot her and others. There was another student who performed CPR on Tiffany because she had lost consciousness. And when she regained consciousness and asked this trainee named Holly, she said, is it bad? Holly said, yes, it's bad. Tiffany looked at Holly and her boyfriend, Dan, who was also shot, and she said, we do this for Jesus, right guys? We do this for Jesus. That's the commitment that forsakes all and desires to do what God wants them to do when it comes to following Jesus. Each of these people, they wanted to follow God. Each of these three here, they had excuses. Each of these three wanted to come to Jesus on their terms. They wanted to live how they wanted to live, the way that it would suit them. Whatever was convenient, whatever was comfortable, whatever wouldn't cost them too much, whatever would be of their own plans and future, don't impinge on my plans, Lord. But you can't come to Christ like that. You can't come to Jesus with your own terms. Jesus wants you wants you. And even though this passage is directed, you see to those who don't know Christ that they might count the cost before they become a Christian. It's a reminder for us who know Christ that salvation is free. There's a cost that is associated with it. But the reward is eternal. Jesus says in Luke 9, 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Are you willing to pay the price? Willing to pay the price of whatever it might be? Because you know what? Many people have a price. If it costs too much, if it's too inconvenient, if it's too impinging on my plans, it's a no-go. no go And you know what? Satan knows what that price is, I bet. And he'll dangle that in front of you every single time because he'll try to buy you out. Try to buy you out and say, I'll give you this. It's going to be way too expensive to follow Jesus, too costly, too sacrificial. They'll sue you and take your home, take your business, all the things you've worked for for 30 years. If you take this stand and disobey Christ, sell out, sell out for 30 pieces of silver. But if you're fully committed and making that decision beforehand, then it's a life of no compromise. The reward will be priceless because you'll have Christ. And you'll have the favor of God on your side. Let's pray. Father in heaven, O God, you have called us to live a life, live a life as a child of God. And God, we pray that you would strengthen our faith to walk with you, to be willing to pay that price in obedience to you, and a love for the Savior. May you, O God, help us to know what it is, to know what the price is when you have said, follow me. God, may we be faithful disciples, people who live abandoned to you, willing to do whatever you ask. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.